Chapter Two of The Last Rebel by Joseph A. Altscheller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two On Trial. My eyes followed the long sweep of the mountains, their shaggy outline cutting the clear blue of the skies. Then they came back to the court, and for the moment I thought that they had deceived me, for either I saw the flutter of a woman's dress, or imagination was my master. A woman in this rough fortress was the last thing for me to expect. But I reflected that it was not so strange after all. A serving woman, probably, the wife of one of the colonel's retainers. It was in keeping with the character of the place, which, in my fancy, I had turned into a baronial keep. I saw the flutter of the dress again, and then its wearer came into better view. She was looking at the river, and stood with her back toward the house. That was no common serving woman the wife of no laborer. The figure was too slender, too erect. There was too much distinction and grace in the pose, and the dress itself was of good cut and material. That was all that I could see, save a mass of coiled dark brown hair. I was full of curiosity, nor do I think I was prying because of it. Put yourself in my place and see. In a few moments she turned and looked directly up at my window, though she could not have known that I was gazing out at her. It was the face of a girl of twenty, fair and strong, yet sad. Even at the distance between us I could see enough resemblance to guess that she was Colonel Hetherill's daughter. A likely enough supposition, anyway, for what girl of such appearance could be here unless his daughter? She looked up at my window only a moment or two, and then, walking with a light and graceful step, disappeared through some door opening into the court. I hold that I am not without a fair share of imagination, and easily I built a fine romance for myself. Here was I, an innocent prisoner in the cruel baron's castle, and this was his fair daughter who would fall in love with me and rescue me. By Jove, she was handsome enough for me to fall in love with her. The only trouble about my romance was that in the morning after a good night's rest I would be sent with a guide to our hunting camp, and that would be the end of it. Happily, when I reached this conclusion, the door was opened and Crothers came in with food, for which I was devoutly grateful. Crothers, I had heard the colonel call him so, was the man who had opened the door for us, a hatchet-faced, battered old fellow, who walked with a limp, and who yet looked strong and active. Evidently the colonel had no mind to starve me, for Crothers bore enough for two upon his tray. A smoking pot of coffee, steaks of venison and beef, warm biscuits and butter made a sight as welcome to my eyes as a Raphael to an artist's, and created odors that were divine. My spirits rose to the summer heat mark. 
"'I see that the Colonel has a proper regard for my health and well-being, Crothers,' I said jovially. "'The Colonel hates all Yankees, and so do the rest of us,' he said, in surly fashion. "'But he doesn't want to starve any of you to death, though I guess you starved enough of us to death in Camp Chase.' "'Camp Chase? What the deuce was that?' I asked. "'One of your war prisons,' he replied. "'Try that coffee. You'll find it good, and you'll find the venison and the beef to be good, too.' I had no doubt that I would. I put the question immediately to proof, which, I may add, was satisfactory. Encouraged by his friendly comment upon the food, in which he seemed to take a certain pride, perhaps having cooked it himself, I spoke to him in friendly fashion, expecting a reply of like tenor. But he seemed to have repented of his sudden courtesy, and made no reply. He had placed the tray upon the table, and without further word or action, left the room. I heard him locking my door with as much care as if he had been Colonel Hetherill himself. I began now to feel that I was in truth and reality a prisoner, a fact which I contemplated before only in a humorous or make-believe way. Nevertheless, it did not interfere with my appetite. I realized that prisoners may become as hungry as free men, and as I could truthfully say I knew not where the next meal would come from, I made satisfactory disposition of this. Refreshed and strengthened, I put the emptied tray on the floor and drew my stool to the window, where I took a seat, hoping that the lady of the castle, for so in my fancy I had named her, would appear again. But the lady did not condescend, nor did any other human being. Perhaps they did not know that I was waiting. Instead, I saw the coming of the night. Since that night, I have felt pity for every prisoner in his cell who watches the approach of darkness. There is so much friendliness, so much good cheer and encouragement about the sun, that even the felon must look to him through bars though it be, as a friend. Even I, who was conscious of no crime and had just eaten a good warm supper, the best of all tonics, felt my spirits decline with the day. My window looked to the southwest, right into the eye of the setting sun. It was a very big sun and very red sun, turning all the mountains into red its blazing scarlet dyes rubbing out the more modest yellows and browns, and even touching the withered grass with flame. The red lances of light fell across the river, and the water foaming around the mound seemed to break in bubbles of fire. Lower sank the sun. One edge of the flaming globe disappeared behind the mountains, and a line of dusk began to creep under the rim of the red horizon. It looked like a battle between night and day, with day losing, despite all the power of its ally, the sun. Broader grew the band of dusk, and narrower became the red segment of the sun. Only the crest of the mountains, long and sharp like a sword-blade, was in the light now. 
there every shrub every rock stood out magnified by the last but most brilliant light of the sinking orb beneath this luminous ribbon trees rocks earth all were gone the mountain crests seemed to swim in the air i had seen many sunsets in the mountains but never before in such a peculiar situation and i own that i felt awed the sun became but a red fragment the red leaves and the fiery bubbles on the river were gone i could hear the rush of the water but i could not see the torrent i looked up again the sun yielding to the night had disappeared leaving but a faint gleam to mark where he had retreated behind the mountains to come up again in another place victorious in his turn the next morning save for this remembering gleam the mountains and the valley were in complete darkness it was dark in my room too and it was only through accustoming my eyes to the coming of the night that i was able to see the outlines of the scanty furniture my spirits were heavy i knew nothing of the nature of the man into whose hands i had fallen and in these secluded mountains there was nobody to help me you can credit if you will much of this feeling to the darkness which often is a wet blanket upon the feelings not alone of children but of grown and experienced men as well it was then with a sensation of relief that i heard some one fumbling at the door any company would be better than none the door opened and the colonel entered followed by the man who had brought my supper and a third whom i had not seen before this new man was of better dress and presence than crothers and the colonel introduced him briefly dr ambrose my military surgeon sir and a very good one too i can assure you crothers put a lighted candle on the table dr ambrose examined my swollen ankle he bound around it a cloth soaked in liniment and said it would be well in the morning now sir said the colonel speaking in a brisk curt manner having done our duty by you as a disabled prisoner we will proceed with your examination. Doctor, it is necessary that this should be taken in writing. You will kindly act as clerk while I question the prisoner. I opened my mouth to protest and to demand explanation, but the colonel cut me short with a Be silent, sir, until the time comes for you to speak. And rather than be exposed to another such insult, I remained silent moreover the scene amused me somewhat i was wondering what this strange old man would do next dr ambrose drew up my stool i had taken a seat on the bed and produced a roll of paper pen and small inkwell his was the deliberation of a military mind provided with time and bent upon doing things well the colonel stood before me straight and stern what is your name he asked arthur west i replied this is the second answer to the same question your home city of new york state of new york your age twenty-seven 
At every question and answer I heard the scratching of the doctor's industrious pen across the pad of the paper. Now, be it understood, I knew no law compelling me to answer these questions, but I thought it better to do so, and then I might see to what end the matter would come. I smiled a little. The colonel saw it at once. "'No levity, sir!' he cried fiercely. "'You do not seem to be aware of your position.' "'Perhaps I was not, but I said nothing.' "'What were you doing within our lines in civilian's dress?' he asked. "'Whose lines?' I replied. "'I do not know what you mean.' "'The lines of Fort Defiance, the last stronghold of the Confederacy, which stronghold I had the honor to command,' he replied, his ancient blue eyes lighting up with the fires of zeal. I laughed. The Confederacy, I said in derision. Why, the last stronghold of the Confederacy surrendered more than thirty years ago. You lie, sir, thundered the colonel, and for the proof that you lie, look around you. The stars and bars still fly above this fort, and I and my men have never surrendered to the Yankees, nor ever will. For many hours now you have been on the soil of the Confederacy, and I, for the lack of higher authorities, am in supreme command, both civil and military. Is not all I say true, doctor? Is it not so, Crothers? Crothers and the doctor bowed in a manner indicating deep belief. I saw that I was to receive neither help nor sympathy from them. "'What is your occupation?' asked the colonel. "'I do not see that it is any business of yours,' I said. "'But as I am not ashamed of my profession, and you may have saved my life on the mountains, I have no objection to telling you. I'm an artist.' At this modest announcement, the colonel's face, to my surprise, became more threatening. Never did I see a man's expression more thoroughly betoken suspicion. "'An artist!' he exclaimed. "'You paint? You draw things?' "'Some of the critics say I don't, but my friends say I do,' I replied. He grumbled to himself and looked at me with angry, distrustful eyes. "'What were you doing on these mountains?' he asked. "'Why were you approaching Fort Defiance?' "'I told you I was on a hunting trip and lost myself,' I said. "'I hadn't the slightest idea I was approaching Fort Defiance. "'I never heard of the place before.' "'He pulled his fierce gray moustache in doubt, "'looking at me as if mine were the most unwelcome face that ever met his gaze.' Presently he beckoned the doctor to the door, and they whispered together there for a few moments. Then he returned to me. "'You have, in reality, a bad ankle,' the doctor says, and he is inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt,' he said. "'And so am I. At any rate, we will not treat you badly, though we may be forced to keep you as a guest for a little while.' I thanked him for his gracious consideration. "'We are compelled to keep you locked in tonight,' he continued. 
but we may be able to do better for you in the morning. Very well, I said with some impatience. Keep me locked in if you choose, but at any rate let me sleep. I thought his rough treatment of me offset the favor I had owed him. Moreover, I was very tired and sleepy, and the obligation of politeness seemed to rest upon me no longer. The doctor folded his notes and handed them to the colonel, who placed them carefully in an inside pocket. Then they bowed stiffly and went out, locking the door as usual. I looked out through my window. The moon was rising above the mountains. In the valley the foliage was tipped with silver. The bubbles on the river, fire-color at set of sun, had turned to silver now. Nothing seemed to stir. All was peace. Wondering what would be the end of my strange adventure, I lay down on the bed and in five minutes forgot wonder and all other things in a deep sleep. I might have slept all the next day, too, but I was awakened by a good shaking at the hand of Crothers, and found the room full of light. Crothers was standing beside me. He was a sour-faced fellow, but he seemed to be less hostile that morning, and I asked him cheerfully if he was going to bring me my breakfast. He said no, but told me I was invited to the colonel's own table. "'It's Miss Grace who did it,' he said. She didn't think the colonel was treating you just right. Miss Grace is the colonel's daughter, is she not? I asked. Yes. I was sure that the girl I had seen in the court the evening before was Grace Hetherill. This invitation looked promising. The colonel would surely come to his senses now and act like a man who knew it was the year of our Lord 1896 and not 1864. As there was to be a lady present, I asked for bath and comb and brush, and wished to make myself very spruce. All these I obtained, finding that the fort was not without its comforts. Then, Crothers still my escort and guide, I went to the breakfast table. I was not prepared for the scene of comfort, even luxury, that met me in the dining-room. Yet I was not astonished. The presence of a cultivated young woman in the year 1896 is responsible for much. It was a large apartment, decorated with horns and antlers, and some fine old silver-bound drinking cups of a past age. But I had little time for inspection. The table was set, and the company was waiting. I seemed to pass suddenly from the position of prisoner to guest and the transformation, in seeming at least, was complete. The colonel, with all the dignity of Kentucky good blood and the military life, saluted and introduced me to his daughter. "'My daughter, Miss Hetherill. Mr. West of New York, one of the other side.' I made my best bow. She was worthy of it. It was the girl I had seen in the court." No fainting maiden, no Mariana in the moated grange was this, but a tall, red-cheeked girl with brown eyes, lustrous dark brown hair, and modern attire. 
here was one who had seen life beyond the walls of fort defiance or its valley any fool would have known it at the first glance in the presence of this splendid woman who received me with so much tact and grace i began to feel as if the father owed me no apology the breakfast-table was worthy of the hostess who poured the coffee for us i glanced again at the room on the wall gazing at me with calm eyes was a fine portrait of general lee near it was one of stonewall jackson farther on was jefferson davis and as i looked at the four walls of the room i saw that the whole confederacy was present wreathed over the door somewhat after the fashion of a looped-up curtain was the confederate flag i wished to ask many questions of this strange household but courtesy forbade it when i saw that every time i led the conversation in the direction of curiosity it was skilfully turned aside instead we talked of the great world outside and made very good progress barring a certain unfamiliarity on the part of the colonel who spoke as if all these things were vague and unreal to him there was a wide window at the end of the room and i could see that it was a glorious morning without the torrent thirty feet down dashed and sparkled in front of the window the gay sunlight falling on it and showing rocks and pebbles in its clear depths all the brilliant colors of late autumn which i had admired so much the day before reappeared more dazzling after a brief eclipse i knew that the air outside was tonic like good wine but there was enough just then to keep me content in that breakfast-room the heart of the lost confederacy the lost confederacy how could i say that with its president and ministers and generals looking down from the walls at me as if all the world were theirs while the stars and bars under which i had just passed hung in loops over the door as his daughter and i talked more the colonel talked less seen in the light of the morning his face looked rather worn and once when he threw his yet thick white hair back with his hand i noticed the scar of a deep wound across his head i began to feel sympathy for him without knowing exactly why he rose presently and excused himself saying it was time to give his men some directions for the day miss hetherell and i dawdled a little over the coffee cups and i took the opportunity to thank her for her intercession with her father in my favor she did not make light of my thanks or of her act and her manner appeared to indicate a belief on her part that i had been in real danger which however i had not been able to persuade myself was so nor could i yet she asked me if i would look through the house i noticed she did not call it a fort and i consented with gladness saying i would be pleased to go anywhere with so fair a guide which she accepted with the carelessness of one who had heard the like before she took me into a room she called the great parlor and a noble room it was too though here as elsewhere the atmosphere was distinctly military it was full thirty feet square 
with a vaulted ceiling of polished oak. Furs were on the floor and arms on the wall, repeating rifles, revolvers, bayonets, swords in much variety. It is my father's chief delight to polish these and to see that they are in perfect order, she said. Miss Hetherell, I said, speaking suddenly from impulse, why does your father cherish this delusion? Why does he not go and live among his kind? I regretted instantly that I had spoken so, for she turned upon me with a sudden flash of anger. Delusion, sir? she exclaimed. You forget yourself. It is the most real thing in the world to him. Be careful how you make use of such expressions here. I advise you also not to forget that you are still my father's prisoner. She spoke with so much earnestness that I was impressed, more from fear that I had wounded her feelings than from fear for myself. I felt confident yet that it was the year 1896, and that all the world was at peace, barring the little wars of England, which don't count. She took me no further than the great parlor, or the armory, if its fit name be applied. My unfortunate question seemed to make some change in her intentions, and she suggested that we walk outside on the terrace. It was a delight as keen as any I had ever felt to step out after imprisonment into the brilliant sunshine of the free and open world. Miss Hetherell threw a light cloak over her shoulders, for there was a sharp coolness in the air, and together we strolled over the terrace. I admired the solidity and strength of Fort Defiance though a good-sized modern cannon could have knocked it to pieces with ease if any one were ever able to get a cannon over the maze of mountains that separated this valley from the remainder of the world. It was impregnable to attack by small arms, if well guarded. The drawbridge was still up, and I spoke of it. "'It is up most of the time,' she said frankly. But today it will be up more than usual. That is on your account. You are to be kept well guarded. The current of the river is too swift, I said, but I think I could swim the moat. If you succeeded, she said, you would probably starve to death in the mountains. Then I shall remain here, I said. I'm glad that I have so good an excuse for remaining. I sought to be gallant, but she only frowned, and I did not attempt it again. She left me presently, going into the house, while I continued my stroll in the crisp, invigorating air. I could take but a limited walk at best, merely the circuit of the hilltop, embracing perhaps a couple of acres around the house. Within that space I could wander at will, and no watch seemed to be set upon me. End of chapter 2 Recording by David Gore